Welcome back to Psychic Crime, and I'm your host, Nicole Mayer. And always, thank you guys so much. I appreciate that I have so many listeners. I never thought that I would have this many. I say this every single episode. I just thought it would be my family, and that's it. I definitely did not think that I would be doing this podcast for this long, so I greatly appreciate it. And I see that out of nowhere, Sweden has taken over as my second largest demographic. I have no idea where you guys came from out of nowhere, but I love it, appreciate it so much. You just unthroned New Zealand. Come on guys, Sweden is overtaking you. You may need to catch up now, but really, I greatly appreciate it. So just please keep showing your support by listening. I do also have a Patreon if you want to uh, request a crime, especially if you do live in another country, uh, because there's a lot of crimes that don't make the international news that uh, would probably be interesting to cover for the listeners. So if you go on the Patreon, there is a tier to where you can request a crime. Um, As well as that, there is merchandise. So we do have um, on Designed by Humans, Crime Scandal is the name of the store. Any of the designs, you can get them in uh, cups, you can get them in um, mouse pads, you can also t-shirts, sweatshirts, hoodies. You just pick the design and just uh, use the drop-down menu to determine which product type that you would like. So um, multiple ways to show your love. Greatly appreciate uh, you listening and those of you who continue to listen. And like I said, Um, I'm on Instagram and I'm on Twitter, so I welcome any type of feedback. Anytime people reach out, I greatly, greatly appreciate it. Now, this week, we are looking at the case of Thomas Gilbert Jr. Parasites account for approximately 2% of all homicide. Perpetrators are typically white, middle-class males without a history of prior criminal conviction. Most parasites involve single victim, single offender situations, with firearms more likely to be used against fathers than mothers. The popular literature, as well as much of the professional literature, have portrayed youths who killed a parent as pro-social individuals who must have feared for their lives. Adults who kill a parent have typically been presented as suffering from mental health disorders. Although these two scenarios describe many parasites, Major mental disorders among youthful parasite offenders, conduct disorder, antisocial personality disorder, and other psychiatric disorders also occur in significant proportion of parasites of both demographics. Most parasites are classified by police as murder rather than manslaughter, meaning they're premeditated. It's not something that happens in the heat of the moment. Once they're charged with murder, youthful and adult parasite offenders are processed very differently by the criminal justice system. Usually, youths are processed by the juvenile court and remanded to institutional settings and later released around the age of 18 if people believe they are no longer dangerous. While adults are typically tried and either acquitted by reason of mental defect or insanity or found guilty and given significant time. Expert testimony on the psychological effects of battering is generally admissible for adult women who kill an abusive parent. 
yet not accepted for children who kill abusive parents. This was a problem in the 90s in the United States. There was a rash, well, starting with the Melendez brothers, but then there was a rash of girls who didn't actually do it themselves, but who either hired people in their class, convicted or convinced people in their class to help them, um, but got other people to commit the murders. So there was a rash of people just not believing kids when they were saying they had been abused. And so they took matters into their own hands and people still at that point in time did not accept the idea that they were killing their parents to protect themselves. Regarding the prevention of parricide, most researchers lament the lack of social interventions in cases of severe family domestic violence. They emphasize the need for early detection and treatment. Abused youths convicted of parricide need mental health interventions immediately after the crime. The youth who was killed to end a cycle of abuse needs mental health interventions different than those to treat a chronically aggressive youth. Factors such as guilt, shame, depression, and suicidality risks making residential treatment of many parasitical youths the only option. Now on to Thomas Gilbert. He was Thomas Gilbert Sr. was born in 1945. He grew up in wealth in a wealthy family and moved easily from exclusive prep schools to the Ivy Leagues. He earned degrees from both Princeton and Harvard, and that Harvard is where he got his uh, graduate degree in business, business administration. On Wall Street, Thomas Sr. quickly found success as an investor and a family man. He married debutante Shelley Stevens Ray, then assistant vice president for the Newcourt Securities Corporation. This was in 1981. The couple became fixtures of New York High Society and were included on the social register. Those of you who are not familiar, in the United States, in New York, the people who are considered like the top echelon of society are on what's called the social register. It's like a who's who of wealthy society people. This index is the city's wealthiest and most well-connected families. They, these individuals, however, had homes in Manhattan's Upper East Side and East Hampton. The Hamptons are a very wealthy vacation spot in New York. Thomas and Shelley welcomed a son, Thomas Gilbert Jr. in 1984 and a daughter Claire soon after. Now, Shelley would eventually put her career on hold to stay home to be a full-time mother. Now, their son, known to friends as Tommy, Thomas Gilbert Jr., appeared initially to follow in his father's footsteps. He was good at sports, attended elite private schools, was tall and good-looking, and he stood out among his classmates. As a student at Deerfield Academy in Massachusetts, he joined the Big Brothers and Big Sisters organization, a community-based mentor program. He grew up spending summers and vacations in Georgica Association in Wainscott. He was assigned an eight-year-old boy from the Deerfield Township, and they formed a connection. We met him and his parents, recalled Tommy's mother. They were waxing eloquently about how much Tommy had done for them, and we were doing likewise, waxing eloquently about how wonderful their son was and how much he had done for Tommy. Now, Tommy surprised his parents when he signed up for a confirmation class at Deerfield. They had enrolled him in a class at their own church in Manhattan while he was at the all-boys Buckley School, 
but he had dropped out. Eighth grade at Buckley is notorious, Tommy's mother said. People who graduate with honors from Ivy League schools talk about the eighth grade being the toughest academic year. So he did not go on to finish that, but he did do this when he was at Deerfield. I'm sorry, but I cannot imagine eighth grade being more difficult than actual high school. So I really don't know what these people are doing at the eighth grade level to their kids, but that's insane that eighth grade is the most difficult year when you have four more years of school left before you're even considered for university. Religion was important to the family. They were not regular churchgoers though. Kindness and good citizenship were important to all of us, Tommy's mother stated. Now, the Gilberts attended their son's confirmation ceremony at an Episcopal church near the Deerfield School. Before his senior year, though, she remembered, the dean of students had asked Tommy to be a proctor for the freshman-sophomore dorm. It's kind of like a monitor. You look over things. Um, you you know, it, it's like a residential um, advisor that they have in colleges and universities. It's just for boarding schools. That's how highly he was thought of throughout the school, among the administrators, the coaches, the teachers, the faculty. He took a heavy course load, four advanced placement courses in his senior year. Now, if you're not in the United States, what an advanced placement class is, it's basically a college level class that you take when you're in your senior year of high school that gives you a little bit more credit towards your GPA than you would have gotten for a regular class. That's how sometimes you can see people who are valedictorians and they'll have like a 4.2 or sometimes even a 4.5 GPA. It's because they took advanced placement courses and did well in them. While playing varsity football, basketball, and baseball, he was able to successfully juggle this course load. His parents often traveled to Massachusetts for his games. Tommy, however, didn't like to brag. In the 12th grade, when I congratulated him on achieving his goal of tri-varsity, meaning he lettered in three sports, he said, well, my goal was to do it junior year, and so I really didn't achieve my goal. When he was one of two Deerfield boys chosen for the all-New England team, the Gilberts had to hear about it from another boy, not their son. So all-New England is when they pick athletes that are the best throughout New England, Massachusetts, Maine, Rhode Island, all throughout the New England region. It's equivalent to the tri-state um, team that they have like in New York, New Jersey, in that area. So um, it's similar to that. The Gilberts were a little disappointed, but the shining achievement for him was his early admission to Princeton because this was his father's alma mater. Miss Gilbert said that it was a school that suited her son perfectly, from the location to its classes. She read with pride from his advisor report in 2002, Tommy has a positive, upbeat attitude, a terrific sense of humor, a calm, unflappable manner, growing confidence, and a sound sense of his self. But his odd behavior was just beginning to show. He comes on slowly, and it's very, very hard to spot. Her mo his mother stated, her husband noticed it first. Tommy had become quiet. We talked about it. I thought it was just exhaustion, but his father thought it was much more than that. At first, there were warning signs of obsessive compulsive disorder, characterized by unwarranted fears that led to uncontrollable behavior. First was the fear of germs. 
and it's incredibly typical. Their son started to avoid certain objects. Then he claimed that they were contaminated. Later, he said their entire apartment on Beekman Place in Manhattan was too contaminated for him to be in. The parents tried to offer him help, but he resisted. By the time he agreed to see a psychiatrist, he legally was an adult, and the recommendation was that he was hospitalized. But Tommy only got worse in college, where he used illegal drugs. Everything from marijuana to hallucinogenic mushrooms, LSD, all his court and medical records show. His mother called it self-medicating, which is incredibly common in people who suffer from mental illness. Now, his father sought help for him at one point, and he ended up spending a night in the hospital, but then checked himself out. He ended up alone in a hotel room in South Carolina. His parents could have gone the route of an involuntary hospitalization, but it would not be indefinite. A 72-hour emergency hold, or three days, at a psychiatric facility, and then he would be back on the street. It's bad enough when you have a mentally ill child, but it's worse when you have an angry mentally ill child, his mother was quoted as saying. But now, he's an adult, and there's not much that they could do at this point. But before I continue to take a look at Tommy's life as an adult, here is a word from our sponsor. Our next partner has a product I use literally every day. I started taking AG1 because I wanted better gut health. I wanted a supplement that actually tastes great. It doesn't taste chalky or sour like superfood powders or probiotics normally do. It just has this really kind of mild tropical taste that I really, really love. So what is it? With one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and aptogens. Some of you know I have Hashimoto's and it causes digestive problems for me. So I've tried a lot of different probiotics and this is one of the best tasting ones I've ever tried. I just drink it in the morning with breakfast and tons of people take different kinds of multivitamins and it's important to choose one with high quality ingredients that your body will actually absorb. So I figured, hey, why not just drink it? For every purchase, they donate to organizations helping to get nutritious food to kids in needs, including No Kid Hungry here in the US. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com emerging. Again, that's it. athleticgreens.com emerging to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Now, once at Princeton, he majored in economics, writing a senior thesis titled The World Effect, Effects of the World Content in the Financial Times on Firms' Earnings in the United Kingdom. But his degree was also not without an asterisk. He had taken six years to graduate, when most people do it in four, which may or may not have had something to do with an incident that happened on May 8, 2007 four weeks before Gilbert was originally supposed to receive his diploma. 
That afternoon, he was arrested by Princeton Borough Police and charged with possession of cocaine and mushrooms and with third-degree aggravated assault for attacking an emergency first aid worker who was trying to help him. The Mercer County Prosecutor's Office, which declined to offer any further um, information, I checked several different places, that was all they would state. Uh, Gilbert entered New Jersey's pretrial intervention program. Upon successful completion in September of 2008, the assault charge was dismissed. It took him until spring of 2009, however, to finally get his degree. If you're not familiar with the American court system, intervention, pretrial intervention is often done for people with substance use disorders. In some places they call it uh, drug court. Um, in exchange for completing uh, the program, certain charges will be dropped or lowered so that you won't have to do actual jail time. Now, at 30 years old, five years out of college, Gilbert seemed to never have a full-time job and was on an allowance from his parents that was reported to have been $600 a week, plus the rent of $2,400 a month for his small apartment on West 18th Street in Chelsea. He told friends about having come up with an algorithm that was earning him a living as a day trader and spoke of starting a hedge fund, even filing papers with the SEC to register a fund he named Mameluk Capital. But his Wall Street talk appears to have gotten far ahead of itself. He had failed the Chartered Financial Analyst Level 2 exam. It is a credential needed for Wall Street work. Not only did he fail it, but he failed it two separate times. That didn't make him unique, as an old schoolmate told reporters. He met him for drinks at one point, and he said, growing up on the Upper East Side, he's definitely not the only kid to be 30 and still supported by his parents. He seemed like the kind of guy who just had a failure to launch. Now, when you heard him say, oh yeah, I've got a hedge fund, I'm working on it. You're like, yeah, clearly that's not going to happen because he has difficulty even having conversations in his backyard. So clearly people understood he had problems and not many people were buying what he claimed to be selling. Other than his looks, it was Gilbert's social unease or anxiety more than anything that made an impression on people. In recent years, many people meeting him for the first time found Gilbert quiet to the point of being strange. He would respond to polite questions with awkward silences, having trouble making eye contact and showing obvious discomfort when talking to strangers. Women would initially be magnetized by his good looks, but would often lose interest after just five minutes of conversation. He did odd things, like at a cocktail fundraiser for the Harbor Science and Arts Charter School, he was the only person to show up in a tuxedo. Someone who knew his family describes Tommy as a little bit off. He just had a blank stare and was never very animated. He almost sounded scripted, which made me think that maybe he was on a mood stabilizer. According to people who socialized with him, Tommy lacked close friends. And the summer of 2012 in the Hamptons, he was befriended by Peter Smith. With their shared Buckley pedigree and a love of surfing, Smith took Gilbert under his wing, 
inviting him to live with him in his row house apartment in Williamsburg. When others called him strange, it was Smith who came to his defense. When others left him off of invitations, it was Smith who went out of his way to include Tommy. It was in his relationship with Peter Smith, however, that Tommy's unraveling would find disturbing and violent focus. At first, being roommates was uneventful. Tommy's anger when it surfaced was usually directed at his father, friends of Smith say. He regularly would rant about how mean and controlling he was. But then, they would just go on a trip. Uh, the last one was a trip to Costa Rica. And there, Tommy was erratic, according to these friends. He was screaming accusations at his friend Smith. And especially, one that kept being repeated was that he had been flirting with a socialite named Lizzie Frazier, a Bernard graduate who was once called the ghost of Edie Sedgwick by Gawker. Edie Sedgwick was an old Hollywood silent film actress. Now, Gilbert had dated her once and remained interested in her. Friends say that after they returned to Brooklyn, Tommy's angry behavior continued. He shout at his father over the phone, slammed doors on people. Now his roommate, growing alarmed, having decided to move his girlfriend in, asked Tommy to move out. Obviously, Tommy did not take well to this. First of all, Smith was spending a lot of time at a second house in Sagaponic that was owned by his family. He was working to try and launch a startup with a small team of colleagues. And he had recently gotten a puppy by the name of Rocket, an energetic Weimaraner, with which Smith was adhering to the instructions of a dog trainer. He was sometimes incredibly strict, but that's because he was trying to break behavioral issues with the dog. One day, Tommy showed up at the house, and friends say he began freaking out on Smith, accusing him of abusing the dog. Not long after, according to sources, Tommy showed up at the house again and stole a flagpole from the front, and the next day he returned and drove it through the front door. Now, the Smiths and his, the Smith family chose not to call the police because they were hoping that it could be resolved privately. Money, you always want to hide things and get it done privately so no one knows. God forbid you ruin that reputation. For months, Smith had been telling family and mutual friends about Tommy's behavior, and almost invariably, they thought he had to be exaggerating. I mean, he seemed to be the only one who had seen this frightening and dangerous side of Tommy, so nobody took it seriously, one of their mutual friends told the press. Nobody thought this handsome, well-educated, privileged, Princeton man was capable of violence. Now, Tommy's looks may have gotten him a pass quite a bit. Now, let's be honest. If Tommy looked like some schmuck, some common Joe Blow off the street, people would have thought he was insane very quickly. It's kind of rude, but kind of true. Now, skeptics were silenced on the evening of October 3rd, 2013. On that night, both Tommy and his friend had been invited to the premiere of And After All, a short film co-produced by their friend Jack Bryan and starring Annabelle Dexter-Jones, and in which Tommy appeared as an extra. 
But as Smith emerged onto the street from his building near Bedford Avenue in Williamsburg, Gilbert stepped out of the darkness and jumped in. Smith later told police he was slamming his head repeatedly against the pavement. Afterward, he called James Bohannon, a friend, and texted him a picture of his face. Tommy had broken his nose and given him a concussion. Bohannon also spoke with Tommy. I said, what are you doing? This is our friend. We've known him our whole life. This, this is a decision you can make that will go either way. But Tommy didn't respond. That was the odd thing. He didn't even try and defend it. He just said, you know what? Peter, referring to Smith, is crazy. You just don't understand the problem. Another friend who spoke to both men that night said, when I was talking to Tommy on the phone, the thing that made me think, okay, this guy is not on this planet and possibly dangerous was the flag fade. Tommy was aggressively manic in describing the incident with repetitive language, contradictions, just full force anger all in one diatribe. After that attack in Williamsburg, Smith filed for and was granted an order of protection which is a type of very extreme restraining order. Even then, Gilbert C. Artavi seemed not to appreciate the gravity of what he'd done. Afterwards, another source said, Tommy was like, hey buddy, why can't we be friends anymore? Hey, you know, us buddies, we fight. But Smith was terrified and the rest of their social circle finally started taking what he had been telling them seriously. I mean, for no reason, Bohannon says, Tommy was creating this insane idea in his head that Peter was out to get him. Everyone knew that this was out of nowhere. It just definitely seemed like some sort of mental event that was going on and it was scary. Now, Tommy had lived a more marginal existence in the last year before his crime. He was estranged from his old circle of friends. His ties to his family had frayed completely and his finances were precarious. His employment was non-existent and his housing was in jeopardy. According to friends, he was living in his parents' Georgica house without their permission. In March, his father called the police after finding the thermostat turned up and a stain on a rug on the second floor. They recalled that the only time they saw Tommy receive a phone call in the months that they were around him was when his mother called to ask if he had been at the Hamptons' house because the alarm had gone off. Tommy's violence wasn't just directed at Smith. He went to sleep for several hours in the Maidstone Club men's locker room one day. When a golf pro asked him to leave, other members say Gilbert threatened to kill him. That got him banned from the club indefinitely. Those of you who don't know, once you pay into country clubs, once you're a country club family, it's pretty difficult to get banned from a country club. Then, in that last summer, on the evening of July 5th, Bohannon's band, Mr. Badger, was playing at Stephen Talkhouse, a popular Amagansett bar that had live music. Gilbert was, Tommy Gilbert was there, and before the band went on, Bohannon talked to him briefly. Man, he seemed really on edge. And he was right. Because before the night was up, Tommy had assaulted two of their mutual friends, Bosco Diaz and Tommy Briggs. 
attempting to choke one before being pulled off by bouncers and ejected from the bar. He managed to re-enter somehow and attack a second time, and this time was finally thrown out for good. But once again, the issue had been Lizzie Frazier. Tommy lived through a mutual friend. Tommy met a woman by the name of Brianna Swanson, a chef who had appeared briefly on Gordon Ramsay's show Hell's Kitchen. Within weeks of meeting, she'd moved into Tommy's Chelsea apartment, where according to a source, she soon saw firsthand the mixture of family dysfunction and financial anxiety that consumed him. He told her he had permission from his parents to build a cabin on their property in Georgica, and they camped a couple of nights in a tent on the beach while he spent days clearing brush from the site. But his parents were renting the house out unbeknownst to him, and he had to abort the project after the tenant arrived and asked him what the hell he was doing. Gilbert and Swanson ended up leasing an apartment in Amagansett instead, but he was often a week late with his rent. Sometimes their relationship was normal. He'd surf for hours while she'd read on the beach. He'd work up a huge appetite and she'd cook for him. He could be affectionate, walking over to kiss her, putting his arm around her. He even drove her Jeep. He gave her his ice cream after she dropped hers. He could also be incredibly private. She wasn't allowed anywhere near his computers, nor near either of the small safes he kept in the Amagansett and Chelsea apartments. He talked about modeling and acting sometimes, and he would videotape himself reading parts. But it was clear that none of this was going to lead to work. Tommy made no secret of the tensions in his family. On Father's Day, he didn't even try and contact his father. He reportedly spoke to his parents the August before. He and Swanson never went to the Maidstone, which is the club. Though Tommy didn't mention to her that he had been banned. He told Swanson about the order of protection that his friend had against him which incredibly upset him because it meant he couldn't see a lot of his friends. He had mentioned one time, when he'd grown especially quiet, that he was trying a new medication. According to later reports, he was worried because his father had told him he was going to lower his allowance to 400 or possibly even 300. Oh no, I'm only going to get $1,600 a month to survive. How will I ever? Sorry. After I'm someone who's lived on that much money, so I I'm, don't really have any sympathy. After the Stephen Talkhouse incident, Gilbert's paranoia began to increase around Swanson too. A knowledgeable source told people, She'd wake up and find him scrolling through her text. He'd accuse her of being in cahoots with his friends, of flirting with men he'd introduced her to, of messing with his head. But it was his old friend Peter Smith, once again, who Tommy would destructively fixate. After Tommy confronted him on a beach on Labor Day, and this altercation consisted of a violation of the protection order, Smith still didn't go to the police. But that changed two weeks later. At 5.35 a.m. on September 15th, our ground floor window was broken at the Smith house 
at 850 Sag Main Street, triggering an alarm. Ten minutes later, the house, which was listed on the National Register of Historic Places, was a blazing inferno. At 5.42 a.m., the Bridgehampton Fire Department responded, and it was soon joined by the Sag Harbor, Southampton, and East Hampton Fire Departments, as well as 75 volunteer firefighters. The house was too hot for them to enter, so the firemen fought the fire from the outside, taking around three hours to put it out. By then, the entire south side of the house had burned to the ground, and the north side, though still standing, was severely damaged. The Smiths would eventually have the whole site bulldozed. A neighbor reported seeing a man in the cemetery across the street, watching the fire from within the tombstones, and investigators later found a gas can and gas-soaked rags there. The Smiths, and those familiar with what they had been going through, strongly suspected that Tommy must have done it. Most concerning, at the day and time that the house was set on fire, Peter would have usually been there sleeping. Now, he informed the police of his violation of the restraining order. That happened on September 18th as Gilbert was driving on North Wainscott Road. East Hampton police found Tommy and stopped him, charged him with violations of the order. He was released, but he's now a person of interest in their fire investigation, particularly after police spoke with his ex-girlfriend. A source tells the media that Swanson had arrived at the Hamptons on the 13th and the next morning before she had even taken her bag out of the car Tommy suggested they go to lunch once they were back in the car though Tommy drove her to the train station and told her to go back to the city because he needed space on the 18th Tommy on the 18th Tommy's girlfriend unaware of the fire three days earlier tried calling and texting him, but was unable to get a hold of him. When she saw him in the city a few days later, he explained he'd been arrested for violating the order of protection. A few days later, they broke up. After she arrived back to the Chelsea apartment and saw flirty text messages with another woman on his tablet, she left the apartment with her clothes in garbage bags and texted a friend who at that time told her about the fire. Later, according to several people with knowledge of the events, she told investigators that the rags found in the cemetery across from the Smith house appeared to match a set of purple bed sheets that Tommy had recently bought. On January 4th, Tommy then went to his parents' apartment at 20 Beekman Place. He took the elevator to the eighth floor and persuaded his mother to go out and buy him a sandwich. He wanted to speak to his father, who just an hour earlier had been at the river club playing tennis. Shortly after, neighbors heard a gunshot, and his mother, upon returning to the apartment because of what she reportedly told police was a bad feeling, found her husband in their bedroom, on his back between the bed and the wall near the windows. He was dead of a single gunshot wound to his head, and in his hand he was holding a 40 caliber Glock pistol. 
Police believed this was an attempt to make it look like a suicide. When they arrested Tommy later that night, after breaking down the door of his Chelsea apartment, they found a disturbing collection of items, including hollow point bullets, a red dot laser gun sight, handcuffs, and a credit card skimming device, along with 21 blank credit cards. On February 5th, Tommy, who had been held at Rikers Island since his arrest on a charge of second-degree murder, was escorted to the lower Manhattan courtroom for his arraignment. With his hands cuffed, asked by Judge Melissa Jackson what plea he wished to enter, Gilbert paused before saying, not guilty. Now, Tommy's lawyer wanted to argue he was not guilty by reason of mental defect. However, Tommy would not cooperate with any of the doctors. Multiple times over the course of the trial, Tommy met with both doctors for the defense and the prosecution, but said nothing. He really just sat there and refused to speak. Even after he was warned multiple times by the judge that this could nullify his defense if he refused to cooperate. Finally, after months of delays due to Tommy's refusal to cooperate, they finally got him to speak to a doctor. He barely made eye contact and barely spoke, answering a fraction of the questions. But he was ruled fit to stand trial. And as the trial went ahead, in the end, he was found guilty of murder and sentenced to 30 years in prison. Now, next week, we want to look at the case of a murder that seems to never truly have been solved, or was it possibly solved in civil court? It's truly bizarre, and another thing that can only help them to be wealthy. So, until then, I hope you see better in the how and why people do.